So should we start? Let's yeah. do it. Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM or on your lovely radio, local radio community station, community radio station. <laughs> My name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Kirschen Erwin Hostetter. And I'm Lauren Elizabeth Corr-Latour. We have climate news to get to. Stefan has an interview with the digital director for 350.org. The Canada's senior digital specialist of 350 Jennifer Deal. Jennifer Deal. Yeah. And they're talking about a day of action coming up in British Columbia. No, across Canada. Oh, across Canada. Next week to uh, honor the beginning of the heat dome, uh, which lasted six days last year and killed over 600 people. And so the day of action is next Wednesday on the 29th. The heat dome's first day was actually 25th, so it's sort of in the middle of that. And so what's the nature of the action? There's a whole series of actions happening across Canada, and you could join one, and you can find out more as in the later part of this interview, but uh, basically going to MPs' offices and demanding an end to climate delay and honoring the 600-plus lives that were lost during that time. All right. And before we get into the, the climate news, you guys had a couple things you were going to say. Yeah. Uh, the thing I wanted to really quickly mention right at the top today was um, an announcement that came out. Um, it's an update from PBO, which is the Parliamentary Budget Office, um, and it's updating a report that was initially released in 2020. And that initial report was assessing the government of Canada's uh, 2018 decision to, as they say, acquire, expand, operate, and eventually divest from the Trans Mountain Pipeline system. They released a new report today that provides, quoting here, an updated financial valuation of the purchased assets and estimates the valuation sensitivity to several key factors. And basically, I haven't read the full PDF, I'm not going to lie, but uh, the website provides two up two, two big highlights, um, and neither one of them mean anything good for, for the pipeline. Basically, the first update is that PBO, the Parliamentary Budget Office, finds that the government's um, decision to, again, acquire, expand, operate, and divest from the Trans Mountain pipeline expansion will result in a net loss for the federal government. And then the second finding is that they examined a scenario um, in which the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion is stopped after June 22nd, so that's that's this month, and canceled indefinitely. Um, and then under this scenario, um, the government would need to write off $14 billion in assets. And again, similar to the first scenario, the net impact would result in, in a significant financial loss for the government. So basically, what PBO finds is that under these two scenarios, whether we keep the pipeline or whether we get rid of it, either way, we're losing money. There, there's no scenario, at least if I'm, if I'm understanding this report from the Parliamentary Budget Office properly, there is no scenario in which we make money off of this pipeline expansion. So in my mind, 
the natural conclusion to draw there is what the frick's the point? That is obviously not the same conclusion that Christia Freeland has drawn. I believe she put out a statement today being like, yeah, but we still, we're still, it's going to be great. It's still a good opportunity for Canada. So, I mean, the powers that be might not necessarily take their parliamentary budget office seriously when they say you're not going to make money off of this project, but we do. We're listening, even if Christia isn't. And it's, it's exactly connected to this weird way and weird place we are in the world. Because what I'm thinking about today is, you know, is also the tar sands, largely due to an article that came out in Bloomberg last week titled, It's Not ESG Driving Big Oil Away from Its Biggest Reserves. And for those who don't know, ESG is basically it's about like caring about good things. And the point of this article is basically that that is not the reason why people are moving away from the world's biggest reserves, specifically citing Canada's tar sands and uh, the oil that is still locked in Venezuela, which is a similar type of crude in both places compared to Saudi Arabia. And the article was prompted by the fact that BP has just announced that it was going to leave the Sunrise Project which is a joint venture in the tar sands that produces about $50,000 of barrels of oil a day. And their decision uh, has them join the ranks of many other major oil players who've sold assets over the past few years. However, I note that it might be a bit more surprising at this time around because oil profits are so high. And so the fact that they're leaving even now is sort of a, it doesn't matter how much money we, how high oil prices could be, this still does not make sense to us. And that's sort of what led this guy to think about this more deeply. And the general thrust of the article is that major oil companies see the writing on the wall and that given the time it takes to recoup the cost of investments in the tar sands, many aren't so sure that it's a safe bet anymore. And why the article struck out to me is twofold. The first is that it continues a long line of cautionary tales coming out of business media. I mean, some of the most damning articles on the tar sands have come from the very right-wing financial post, which consistently still produces climate denial and yet are not so sure about the tar sands. And yet, for some reason, those parties that run Alberta, seemingly including the NDP, to accept these ideas would be heresy. heresy. And it goes even further with the UCP which last week we briefly mentioned that $3.7 billion of new investment was pouring into Alberta to renewable energy projects, a level of investment that any government would tout, except apparently when doing so might give off this sort of whiff that you aren't enough in the pocket of big oil, because when they were approached for comment on this undeniably good news story, they didn't even get back. It's this weird upside down reality that has be that 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 I think connects these two stories and has been worrying me the past you know few weeks and months, which is that like previously the conservative argument for decades has always been that fossil fuels are cheap and renewables are expensive and so tradition transitioning would hurt the economy, but now the cost of renewables are well below the cost of fossil fuels, and with even major industry players indicating that they, that they see an end to their own fossil fuel markets. But we are seeing the shift towards pure politics, where renewables are bad because they're lefty, and fossil fuels are good because it's another way to own the libs, or make the though people like us, us mad. And what this is leading to is legislation in the states mandating the continued use of coal, even when 
the economics don't make sense. They're beginning to try to force investors to keep investing in fossil fuels by labeling divestment as woke capital. And so all of these tools, which they hated the idea of regulation or the idea of forcing people to invest in different ways, are now being turned on their head and used against renewables for political gain. And so we're in this weird position now where business papers and activist zines are aligned on the future of the tar sands. And yet our federal government continues to build pipelines, even after their own PBO says it will lose money no matter what. And then you have our, all the while our supposed leftist leaders out West are picking up ethical oil talking points from Ezra Levant. We seemingly have, you know, left the Rubicon of reasonableness or even of fact-based arguments. And we are now in a world where the fossil fuel infrastructure and the fossil fuel idea is so ingrained in our society that that will perpetuate despite the economics and environmental conditions both arguing they shouldn't. And I don't know how we break through that. So what are you saying about Ezra Levant? He had his whole ethical oil thing about how you shouldn't, all oil should come from Alberta because Saudi Arabia is bad. That was like his talking point about 10 years ago. And it's been picked up in a few ways by some NDP candidates in Alberta. And the first article you mentioned was saying that ESG is not causing people to divest from the... from the. From ESG the... is not causing major oil companies to leave the tar sands. Major oil companies are leaving the tar sands because those investments are no longer making sense for them because of how long it takes to recoup their costs. And they're not sh certain that they're going to make money in 20 years. So they're not going to invest the billions of dollars now in these projects. ESG is an investment standard. Yeah. Right. But, but what role does it actually play in investment decisions? ESG basically is trying to ensure that your company is being better than other companies who do what you do at environmental things, social things, and governance things. They want to know how well you score on a certain series of, of metrics and use that as part of their investment scorecard to determine whether or not they should invest in some things and other things. Okay. And so when, when you say politically... You mean in the in the in the discourse between parties that have power? Yes, and parties that are in power. Yes, solar right now it is cheaper to make new solar than to keep oil to keep coal online. Like it is cheaper per per element of power to build new solar energy than to even maintain the existence of coal power. How that hasn't led to the entire destruction of the coal industry is exclusively by pr the protection led by big utilities and political interests. Right. But aren't we seeing more and more that uh, large businesses, the whole apparatus of what we call the business world, many of the owners of that, right? It's not, it's not even necessarily about making profits long term. For instance, you have uh, Uber and Lyft, right? Sure. Those companies are not making money. No. They just, but they exist and they continue to proliferate because those with so much money that it doesn't matter what they do with it simply want it to exist. And so, and so wouldn't, and so wouldn't the answer to your, to your question be something like, there's just so much money at the top that it doesn't matter what, that if they can even imagine that they're going to make profits well, decades into the future, they're just in control now and this is what they want now. There was a, a, 
an IEA World Energy Investment Report that came out in 2022. I don't know if it came out. It could have come out today. It might have come out last month. I don't actually know when it was released. But basically, the finding is that like oil and gas companies are still primarily putting all of their money Um, all of their capital spending towards fossil fuels, like only 5% of their investment is in clean energy. And I think that's because Dave, to a degree is correct. They don't actually care what happens to their business 20 years down the line because they are beholden to to shareholders. All they have to do is make sure that that share value is as high as it can possibly be right this freaking second Um, in terms of like longevity for the business, let alone what's good for a community 20 years down the road. They, they don't, they don't actually, it doesn't matter to them because that's, that's the way our system is structured. Yeah. Well, and the ways that these bonuses work for people running these companies is on quarterly earnings, right? So like they are making money per quarter every three months. The immediate here and now, yeah. like an, an insanely short term. And there's some things like, I think when you see Uber and Lyft, that's a bit more of a long play that they're hoping it will make the money later. Like Amazon lost money for the first like 15 years it existed. And it was just building market share and then became the behemoth evil that it is now. And so there's some long plays there too. But when you think about oil industries and other things like that, definitely what plays into this is the idea that they want to make as much money in the next four months as possible or three per quarter. So... I wanted to mention, because you guys were talking about investor to state dispute settlements, how they've become uh, a big problem, big obstacle for countries to put forward climate legislation, because it costs so much more, because according, there's an international treaty that was signed several decades ago, which allows companies to sue states for doing this. And now two-thirds of those, uh, state, of those um, lawsuits are happening against country, countries in the EU. And so countries in the EU are now thinking we should get out of this treaty that allows these, these private companies to sue us for, for money, to, for, simply for making decisions about energy. Um, what I didn't realize was that those courts are completely private and secret. The, nobody even has to disclose how many of those lawsuits exist or whether a lawsuit exists. So they, just, they just go under the radar and nobody has to know anything about them according to the treaty. And that's what's happening now. And also... Uh, there is a decision happening today, a meeting happening today in Brussels, which could lead to uh, the EU deciding to pull out of that treaty. So, hope so. Soon there will be some sort of news about whether or not the EU is going to stop allowing those companies to sue them. Research shows the Arctic is warming faster than ever, and it's being predicted that sea levels will continue to rise for centuries, even assuming we reach the fabled global net zero. Damien Carrington quotes the lead researcher as saying, quote, We expected to see strong warming, but not on the scale we found. We were all surprised. 
From what we know from all other observation points on the globe, these are the highest warming rates we have observed, observed, observed so far. And the warming rates being referred to are those in the Barents Sea. So they're talking about uh, the melting of glaciers. Uh, and a recent climate meeting in Bonn saw rich countries continue to refuse to provide or to consider providing money to poorer countries to deal with the climate disasters they face now and will face in the, into the future. Mitchell Beer quotes Colin Reese of Oil Change International as saying, quote, the hypocrisy and obstruction from rich countries in Bonn uh, are deeply disappointing. Mere months after key commitments in Glasgow by major polluters to phase out international public finance for fossil fuels, these same nations are aggressively pressuring African and other global South countries to build long-lived fossil fuel infrastructure the planet can't afford, while refusing to pay for devastating climate-induced loss and damage. Yeah, so this is just a, a very sh a very quick throwback to to the conversation we were having last week about loss and damage, and about how uh, potentially um, the bond intercessionals, so the meetings that happen six months after slash six months before COP every year, um, potentially we're going to provide a space for meaningful. Um, not just discussion, but but commitments to come out from global North countries on loss and damage financing and coughing up some of the money that we so desperately owe to to global South countries who are who are currently feeling the effects of, of climate disaster. Um, and those conversations didn't go the way they needed to go, um, whether or not uh, loss and damage is going to be on um, COP27, the COP27 agenda in a meaningful way. I'm not actually too sure that's something I'm going to have to to do a bit of research on and, and get back to you folks. So hopefully that's a that's an update I can provide maybe next week um, to, to see what those conversations are shaping up like. And I guess ultimately it's something we might not know for a couple more weeks. I don't I don't know what the agenda release is like. But again, it was the type of thing where at Bond loss and damage was discussed, but meaningful commitments to contributions weren't necessarily made the way we needed them to be. So 9.5 million people in Bangladesh and India are in dire straits after monsoons brought what Reuters has called the worst flooding in over a century to the area. The Associated Press recently ran an article about uh, hundreds of unhoused people dying in heat waves, citing a statistic of 130 homeless people dying last year from the heat in Phoenix alone. And quoting one man as saying that it's difficult in the summer to find a place at night that's cool enough to sleep without the police running you off. Meanwhile, in Atlanta, activists are living in trees in a suburban forested area to try to prevent a massive police training facility that's set to be built there, which would destroy the forest. 70% of locals were logged as being opposed to the project when city council voted to move it forward. Record-setting floods and mudslides recently caused Yellowstone to shut down. Larry Fink of BlackRock, which is a highly influential investment company, is now saying that the company will not be the quote-unquote environmental police. The Energy Mix quotes from a company report that read, We are not likely to support those shareholder proposals that in our assessment implicitly are intended to micromanage companies. This includes those that are unduly prescriptive and constraining on the decision-making of the board or management, call for changes to a company's strategy or business model, 
or address matters that are not material to how a company delivers long-term shareholder value. Environmental groups in the U.S. are suing the Biden administration to try to stop 3,500 drilling leases on public lands, and West Coast Environmental Law in B.C. is putting together a lawsuit against international oil companies to make them pay for the harms their product has caused. The organization is inviting municipalities in B.C. to join in the lawsuit, asking for $1 from every taxpayer. And finally, a giant tortoise that was thought to be extinct for a century was recently found in the Galapagos Islands. They found it in 2019, but now after the DNA test, they've, dis- they've decided that, in fact, that is the tortoise they thought was extinct. Three quick things, uh, starting with the bottom, which, A, is a story that I think fits, Lauren, your previous wishes of a nice story about animals. But to give a slightly further explanation of that story, which was requested uh, by a friend of the show, Matthew Klippenstein, the giant tortoise, they currently only know of this one giant tortoise uh, that is of this, of, this, of this thought to be extinct species. And so they're hoping to find more so that they can sort of bring the species uh, back into existence. Uh, is apparently about 50, and they could live to about 200. So they have, uh, they have a bit of time to hopefully find a mate for this tortoise. Well, they have 150 years. Well, I mean, who knows how long? I don't know if you can mate at 200. I don't know. <laughs> Do we have any understanding of the tortoise's, um, like, sexual identity? Like, because if it's, if it's the, a... Yeah, what, what junk does this bad boy have, Steph? That's, the, that's a good question. That's a question. This is a female tortoise. Okay. Looking for Ooh, so maybe not a full 150 years ahead. If good you luck. know any giant male tortoises that are down, Yeah. let us know. Uh, <laughs> We're in direct talks with the scientists. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, other things on that, though, previously, Larry Fink, come on, dude. You got so much good vibes over the past, like, seven years, once at being like, I care about climate change, I care about climate change, I care about climate change, and to now sort of do this bit of a backtrack of, like, I don't be the environmental police. Like, You got scared by the Republicans in yeah. Texas. They were like... We're not so down for this uh, this woke investment. He was like, yeah, neither am I, actually. Yeah, which, you know, just really is not helpful to anyone. Disappointing. If I were a billionaire, I wouldn't be afraid of anyone. Yeah, like what's the point of being a billionaire if you are going to be scared of people? Right, if you have to, like, kowtow to yeah. jerks. Anyway, I'm Wait, not actually pro-billionaire, obviously. The thing is, he's worried about his legacy. He's not worried about his bodily person. He's worried about how he will go down in the history of the investment world. You know what? I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, not good. You're a billionaire. People yeah. are going to view you as evil regardless. Unless, like, he's got one option, which is would be to basically take his entire investment fortune and spend the rest of his life trying to fix every, every problem. Uh, and even then, probably isn't going to win everyone over, but at least might win, like, three people over. People seem to really want to love billionaires. Like, Elon Musk is obviously terrible. Or, like, Mackenzie Bezos, who divorced Jeff Bezos, took half his money, married a high school teacher, and then has been, like, systematically giving it away. Um, Before we leave, I did just want to clarify, of course, a quick Google is all it took. Um, Yes, at this point, Bond was a big failure in terms of loss and damage. Loss and damage is not on the official cop schedule at this point. That doesn't mean people aren't going to continue to push for it and people aren't going to continue to organize for it because, yeah, it's it's crucial. It's on there. Try again in a few seconds. That was my Google robot talking at me.
anyway. Um, sorry. Yeah. So loss and damage, not on the agenda at this point. Hopefully that changes. All right. And we'll go to another music break and return with Stefan's interview. What's her name? Uh, with Jennifer Deal. 350.org. I'm here with Jennifer Diol, the Canada Senior Digital Specialist at 350.org. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Stephen. And so we're there's a day of action next week that we're going to dive into that was based on the anniversary of the heat dome. And so we'll get into both those issues. But before we do, just as a way of introduction, can you tell us a little more about yourself and your work? Yeah. So yeah, my name is Jennifer and I'm an organizer with 350 Canada. I've been organizing with 350 Canada for the past four years and before that with local climate justice groups across BC. I'm calling in from the unceded and ancestral territory of the Sioux people in so-called Okanagan, British Columbia. And I've been organizing on the front lines of the climate crisis for close to a decade now. Amazing. And so, again, this day of action that we'll be talking about in a second is planned to commemorate the anniversary of the Heat Dome. And as you referenced, you are based in BC. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience of those days? Yeah. So when the Heat Dome hit, I was on maternity leave, raising my then eight-month-old son and farming. My family owns a small vegetable and fruit tree farm here in Kelowna at the heart of the Okanagan. And I remember the heat dome hit the week we were going to be opening our fruit stand where we sell our produce to the community. So I remember on one of the first days when it got to that 40 plus degree heat, rushing to local stores to find fans for our fruit stand because our unit didn't have cooling systems. We It does get hot typically in the Okanagan, but our fruit stand is an outdoor open market and so we typically we haven't had to worry about that and then a few days into the heat dome when the heat was peaking our ac unit broke down so it does get hot here in the okanagan of course and most homes are equipped with cooling units but like many our ac unit is older and it broke down and it could not work in that kind of heat so i remember how hot and how fast like a hot it got in our house and I remember how it felt sitting in that heat we were lucky that we have a basement floor which was relatively cooler and we had fans so that's where my baby and my parent-in-laws spent the majority of the heat dome waiting it out my husband and I are farmers as I mentioned and like many farm workers and migrant workers and postal workers and a lot of other kinds of professions we couldn't afford not to be outdoors working. So we were putting in 10, 12 hour days in that kind of heat just to keep our crop from not drying up. And despite our best efforts, that kind of sustained heat and temperature is going to cause damage to our crop. And so I remember how devastating it felt 
despite putting that time in, we lost thousands of dollars worth of crop, as did many farmers. It felt unbearable some days just to be outdoors or even be upstairs in the kitchen making a meal. The best way to describe it is I felt like I was in a pot of heat, heating water and the heat and pressure kept building, but I couldn't get the lid off or catch a break from it. And I also remember how unnatural and difficult it felt not having my baby on me. We tend to take like the luxury of being able to take my baby anywhere outside, inside. And that just wasn't the case for that like week plus where we had no cooling system upstairs and the baby could not be outside for long periods of time. So I remember how difficult that felt. Because our AC broke down like it did for so many people, we went weeks without any kind of central cooling system. And I remember when an AC repairman was finally able to come to our home, he felt so overwhelmed and remorseful and helpless that he wasn't able to help people fast enough. And I remember something he said to me that really did stick with me. And it, he said that I wish my kids could experience one normal summer without having to worry about wildfires and extreme heat. And that really stuck out with me. And that was similar to a lot of the conversations I had with neighbors. And I remember any time an ambulance drove down our street during that time and even into the summer, we would all collectively hold our breath and hope that our senior community members and vulnerable people in our neighborhood were okay. Just because we live in a rural part of the city in farmland and so having ambulances drive down our street isn't that common. And I remember one of my neighbors advised me that I pack an emergency evacuation kit and bag because Okanagan, it's very common to have wildfires. And shortly after the heat dome, there were wildfire scares in our area. And so I remember how terrified I felt being a new mom and, you know, farming in like a very precarious heating world. Like I remember how terrified I felt that this is kind of our new normal and this is the world that my son and a lot of children will be inheriting. Yeah, for sure. So for folks who may have forgotten, can you let us know, like, how hot did it get? Yeah, so with humidity, it was 40 plus degree heat was what the weather network was saying. And those were sustained temperatures that was like early in the morning, late in the evening. But yeah, at the highest, it was about 40 if you took in like humidity. Wow. And I didn't prep you for this question, so no worries if you don't have an answer, but are you able to describe what happens or what causes a heat dome? Yeah, so I don't fully remember the technicalities, but I believe a heat dome is part of an extreme weather event. And what happens is warm air gets like basically put in a bubble because of like pressure from the atmosphere. And so the heat is essentially getting trapped until that pressure isn't relieved. The, the heat is going to get trapped in that pocket. So you can kind of think of a heat dome like water boiling in, in a pot and the lid is on it and it's going to keep getting warmer and it's going to keep building that pressure and that heat until that pressure is removed. Right. That makes sense. And thank you for that description. And so... You, know, you you described your attempts to sort of try to keep farming during this time. How did you aim to keep cool? Like, how did you survive you know, outdoors, 40 plus temperatures for hours on end doing physical labor? Like, what were you doing? What were you thinking? And how was that working? 
Yeah. So we basically just had put up makeshift like canopies in our farm so that like me and my husband could go under shade and there'd be shade nearby. We had basically like wet towels. We would just take frequent more breaks than usual, take like tap of water, like cool the towel down and put that towel around our neck and then just drinking a lot of cold water. It sometimes it did really feel unbearable, like your body felt like it because you're exerting all this energy and you're basically sweating buckets, you're sweating through your clothes. So oftentimes we would just take more frequent breaks, jump into our cars, have the AC running in our cars or go home and spend extended times just like indoors. We bought a little kiddie pool. We would fill that up and we would all dip our feet in it. And that's how we kept our son cool if we did take him out in the evening for like a few minutes. So we were basically just around the clock trying to figure out like taking regular breaks and making sure we stayed cool. Yeah, wow. even for your son, a few minutes late at night, that's incredible that it was still so hot, still so late we at night. We were still so hot and it was like, if I felt hot, I knew that he was. And so we did our best to try to get him some respite from being stuck indoors for the majority of the day. So yeah, spent a lot of time in the kiddie pool. <laughs> <laughs> and this lasted five days, no, six days, I guess. It was close to a week from what I remember. And you mentioned sort of the ways in which you were worried about your neighbors. And obviously, you know, 600 or so folks were not so lucky. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what made them uniquely vulnerable and how we should be thinking about protecting these folks as we enter another summer here in Toronto. It's been 30 plus the last couple of days. Yeah. So a lot of like, we're fortunate that, you know, in the Okanagan, our home had an AC unit, but a lot of communities across the province in, you know, like housing or apartments, they don't have cooling units. Our province is obviously not prepared to deal with these kind of extreme weather and climate driven weather events. And if you if you read the BC service coroner's report, it becomes very clear that it was folks who were living in assisted living homes or folks that were seniors, people that are vulnerable due to underlying health conditions. They were the most susceptible to this. And of course, people who are experiencing homelessness and like being able to find shelter in this kind of heat, you know, like our our province wasn't equipped to support and deal with that. And and it was like people who were vulnerable that were on the front lines of experiencing this. And yeah, a lot of folks not being fortunate enough to yeah, have the supports to stay cool during this time. That, that's really interesting. Yeah. One of the organizations that I really respect here in Toronto is called Community Resilience for Extreme Weather. And one of the things that they repeat to people often is that in these scenarios, one of the biggest things that people lack or one of the biggest issues is actually lack of community because there's no one to check in. You know, there's no one to be like, hey, are you okay? Has your AC broken? Do you need help? And mm -hmm. these communities of care end up becoming so important in keeping people around because you're able to look out after for one another. And so you sort of referenced that your community was doing that for each other, you know, in mm -hmm. your space. But it's, I imagine, harder the bigger towers you get into in the more dense neighborhoods that you might follow yourself, find yourself. Yeah, of course. Like I was just near my parents-in-laws, like they came up and are with us in Kelowna, but they used to live in Penticton 
in a home where like there was they really didn't have any like community members or neighbors to check in on them so I was thinking there's so many people that like don't have that community of care as you mentioned that would have those people that could check in on them and so I was thinking like how lucky I felt that they were living with me instead of being in a home in a community where that wouldn't have been a regular occurrence and with AC units even folks who did have cooling units like breaking down in that kind of heat it's so important to check in but a lot of folks don't have that yeah for sure so I'm curious has your experience with the heat dome changed how you think about climate change? Yeah, so I think for me, being a new mom and having a young baby and living through that kind of extreme heat event where we had no cooling system for a majority of it was very challenging. And it was it was a situation where I remember every day was very hard and it was unknown and it was very scary. And I was always on the edge of my seat. I can still remember thinking back now how it felt to breathe in that kind of hot air for a sustained period of time, just having to be outdoors. And I'm immediately filled with that panic and dread that I remember having during that time, just because there were so many moving factors for me. I had a young baby. I had a farm. I had to be outdoors. I had to take care of him. It was way too hot to do anything. And I remember how that felt. And it's predicted that these types of extreme heat events are only going to get more frequent and worse in the Okanagan, which is where I live. There's been a lot of reports and news and indicating that like what happened last summer could be mild compared to what we're going to experience living in a heating world and living through a climate emergency. And I think in North America, especially, we can sometimes feel a little bit removed from these extreme climate disasters we talk about, especially when compared to the global South or communities who have been relentlessly on the front line of climate disasters. And this has just been their lived reality for years. And so I think people are now experiencing these disasters and how extreme they can be. I mean, the heat dome claimed, as you said, 619 lives, and it was the deadliest weather event in Canadian history. And so I think people are realizing that the, a, cl- a climate emergency is well past our front door. And if we don't take bold, immediate transformational action that's required, these extreme weather events and climate fuel disasters are only going to get worse. And it's very clear that our governments are not prepared to, to deal with them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, another uh, quick tangent. I'm curious, you know, obviously... Given your position within 350, you sort of have a good background and good history of climate change to contextualize this. I wonder if there's anyone in your sphere or if you've noticed a shifting from more general populace about how they are interacting with climate change. You know, you mentioned the repair, the, the, the AC repair guy, or there's something that people who may not normally interact with this or wouldn't have a frame of reference to contextualize this in and suddenly being hit with something so, so severe might be more jarring. Yeah, so I can just give the example of my own family. My parents and in-laws immigrated from India to Canada. And so I think for a lot of immigrants or new Canadians, when they come from a community that's like, it's always been hot, there's always been pollution. They've lived on those like front lines. They can kind of sometimes like disassociate from that when they come here. And talking to my parents now, especially after the heat dome and them living through that, like those kinds of temperatures, they had it, they had an experience that 
even in India, right? Like the 40 plus degree where they lived. And I think it was like the way that they talk about it with me now is, isn't this thing of like, well, it's not happening. It's not that bad to like, this is definitely happening. What are we doing about it? And really being more critical of the government than they were in the past that it's been decades of inaction. Like we need to take action. Like I'm starting to have those conversations and see those conversations become more normal. And people also recognizing that this is becoming our new normal. Like climate disasters are our new normal, wildfires, extreme floods, storms, and that that's not normal. That's not how we grew up. That wasn't what our childhood was like. And so, yeah, people are realizing that. Well, that's at least good to hear for depressing reasons, I guess. Um, but speaking of action, there is this day of action coming up next week. What are you calling for with it? Yeah, so next week on June 29th, communities across the country from Whitehorse all the way to New Brunswick will mark the one-year anniversary of the heat dome, which was the deadliest event in our history, weather-related event in our history, and will call on Trudeau and our federal government to end their classic climate delay and denial of approving fossil fuel expansion in the midst of a climate emergency. We want people... And we want our federal government to connect the dots between their climate delay and their climate record, which Trudeau and Canada's climate record is the worst among G7 nations. You can draw a straight line from that horrible climate record through approval of mega fossil fuel expansion projects, the Trans Mountain Pipeline and the Beta Nord offshore drilling project, a straight through climate disasters that we're seeing that are getting more worse and more frequent. So we want to instead see our federal government invest in bold climate action, like a just transition before the end of the year that gets us off our fossil fuel dependence fast while investing in communities and workers on the front line of the fossil fuel industry and the climate emergency. Awesome. So maybe you can give us a sense of a couple of the events that are happening, you know, what are they, what are people doing? Yeah. So if you visit climatedelay.ca, you can see a list of the local actions that are happening at these local events. Folks will mark the one year anniversary of the heat dome. So they'll remember the 619 lives lost last summer and remember the devastating toll that climate impacts have taken on our communities. And most of these actions will be organized outside a member of parliament offices to remind our federal government that this is on their hands, like the worsening climate disasters that we're experiencing and living through. This is on them. And we won't stand for them to stand idly by and continue this delay of critical climate action as climate disasters continue to get worse and more frequent. And they're impacting communities. And they're especially impacting communities that are still recovering from previous climate disasters. So that's a little bit about what the events will look like on June 29th. Awesome. So I feel like I know the answer to this question a bit, given our conversation already, but it's something that I want to keep coming back to around climate anxiety and really how you deal with it. I feel like given our conversation, I don't have to ask the first part, which is do you experience it? I think that's a pretty much a given, but yeah, how do you manage it? How do you, you know, get up the next day? And I'd be curious, actually, even maybe even during that six days of the heat dome, how you caught up each day and are like, okay, I'm going to go out and do this. And then maybe more 
also a lot, secondary question of how you might deal with it more generally speaking. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, I experienced climate anxiety as a farmer, as a young mom, and someone who's kind of been organizing around the climate emergency for the past decade. So I'm constantly feeling it. And I think some days I manage it better than other days. I definitely have my days where it feels really unbearable and I have that sense of panic and I just need to sit with it. Absolutely, I have those days. But I try to balance it with hope. During the heat dome, of course, I felt that in, in, that climate anxiety bubble up, but I also felt hope because of my community. I was very fortunate to have a community that checked in on each other, that like, you know, did everything in their power to support each other, especially in the farming community. Farming is just becoming very precarious and farmers are pretty used to having one good year for every three bad years, but it's just been year after year of uncertainty and precarity. And so having that community gave me a lot of hope. And like, I, I remind myself that yes, like people created the climate crisis and absolutely political and corporate like climate delay that these tactics we see from like our po politicians and corporations in the fossil fuel industry of delaying critical climate action is making climate disasters worse. But people can imagine, can organize, can build the world that comes after. And I'm part of those spaces that does that incredible work. And people are building a movement to take down the fossil fuel industry and hold our elected officials accountable. People are imagining and fighting for a transformational change, like a just transition off fossil fuels. And that gives me hope for the future that it is possible to build a safe, livable future for my son. And this helps me go from that place of, I don't know what to do, to I'm already doing something and my community is doing something. And I think becoming a parent also forced me to not be in this wheelhouse of overworking myself and being in front of a screen and constantly reading the news and reading one climate disaster after another to actually just pause and find pockets of rest and connection to my community. I Being with my community and farming reminds me that we're alive right now and we're fighting every day and that matters. So I, I take the time now daily to get outside, to connect with nature, to, you know, farm. I farm daily almost during the summer, spend quality time with my family and chosen family and just be on the land, just being on the land and farming on the land. It's just really rejuvenating and it, it fills me with hope. Yeah, it really is amazing how much of a, a salve uh, or salve, depending on whether or not you pronounce the L, like just being able to be connected to nature and being able to get your hands in dirt and feel real life growing. You know, there's something about that is that it gives you presence, it's calming, it's amazing. And something that I think that we as a society have to find a way to get better at and let, let enabling people to get to, right? Like, especially in big cities, it's hard to get to nature sometimes. And it's so necessary, as you just said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely feel very fortunate that I get to do this in the summer and I get to, yeah, have a community of farmers and people who support us and like buy local. That That is what fills me with hope and kind of helps calm that climate anxiety that bubbles up. And so... You mentioned it once before, but perhaps you can give it again. How can folks 
learn or get involved in this day of action and then sort of follow with 350 Canada more generally? Yeah. So for the day of action, if you visit climatedelay.ca, you can find and join an action near you. There's dozens of actions on the map and more actions will be added as they come in. And if you don't see one that is near you, it isn't too late too late to host one. I know that can feel like a big ask to host a day of action that's happening next week, but these are unprecedented times. And this is the moment to make big asks of our community. So if you feel that there should be a local event in your community, please raise your hand and sign up. We have an organizing toolkit. We have art decals and a lot of support. And we have organizers and volunteers who are ready to give you one-on-one support to make your action as big and bold as possible. So definitely check out the events on climatedelay.ca and yeah, join the action near you. And in terms of getting involved with 350 more largely, you can follow us online. We're on all the social medias. And yeah, when you sign up to join an action on June 29th, we'll follow up with and some incredible organizing plans that we have for the summer and into the fall. Amazing. And so it is our tradition to give our guests the last word of the show. So I, I'm going to throw it back to you just to sort of give one last thought you have about this or anything else to our generalized listener who spans across Canada. But before I do, I just want to say thank you so much, Jennifer Deal, Canada Senior Digital Specialist with 350.org. Thank you so much for your time and for your work. And yes, any last thoughts? Yeah, I just want to say that I completely resonate with people, the frustration, the anger, the the feelings of hopelessness that we can sometimes be paralyzed with living in a heating world. But I also want you to remind you that there are people fighting, there are people building, there are, are people imagining and thinking of the transformational changes we need and putting people power behind that. So connect with your communities, connect with the land, connect with people. And yeah, definitely if you see an action near you, join us. Taking collective action is one of the best antidotes to despair. So I hope that you'll join me on June 29th to end climate delay.